thank you for a chance just to worship with you, Lord. Oh, those songs were rich, rich in truth, and truth leads us to worship. You are the King of kings. And today we're going to study a passage where most people did not know that. They were caught up, many, in faithless worship. But it did not deter you. The king knew what he needed to do. He knew he needed to lay his life down. And Lord, true worshipers, true believers, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ know that. It emboldens us, Lord. It strengthens us that our Savior, our King, our Lord and Master would cut through the pomp and circumstance and do what's right. Do what the Father sent Him to do to save us, to rescue us. And so we are caught up in your glory, Lord. And we can sing Hosanna, Jesus saves, from a true heart, Lord, because you've captured us, Lord. Father, we thank you that we are not the only ones that preach this message. There are many, many around the world, Lord, that proclaim the pure word of God, proclaim a gospel unhindered by works. And that causes us to run. We thank you for our missionaries that you allow us to partner with, Lord, around the world, embolden them, strengthen them by this gospel, Lord. Give them mercy and favor, Lord. Lord, we pray that one day that you would keep our hearts together and one day we'll stand together with every tribe and tongue and nation around the world, singing in one voice the great truths of our Savior. Lord, we think of those who could not be here today, whether illness, uh, just temporary illnesses, or those who are uh, struggling with life's end, Lord. Be with them. Give them mercy. Help them. Cause them to, to hear this message, even if they're watching now, Lord, that you would use the word of God to encourage them. We pray for those who are headed for surgery and, and surgeons that are headed there to care for them. We pray that you would guide both and protect both, Lord. Lord, thank you for your love for us. It is undaunting. It is, it is amazing, Lord, as we think about how you care for us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had someone in your life that you would follow? I mean, really follow. Like run through walls type of follow. Maybe you were an athlete and you had that coach, that, that one coach that really could motivate you. You, you would just do whatever he wanted to do or she wanted you to do. You, it just was they were a great motivating person. I've talked to many, many military people, and they said there was this one captain, this was one guy that just really, he really helped me, and I, I would follow that guy into war. I would follow him into even what could be my death. Maybe, maybe you have a boss like that, that you really appreciate that person, and you're ready to follow them. You've had a friend, a mentor in your life. You would follow them. Well, there's no one greater to follow than the Lord Jesus Christ. He blazes a trail that is amazing. Today, we're going to look at this triumphal entry. The Bible, usually your notes will, uh, in your Bible, the heading, we'll call it the triumphal entry. But in amongst that crowd, as we'll see, are mostly faithless people. But in the middle of that, deep buried in them, are some very faithful people. There's a blind man that was just saved in, in Mark chapter 10. You remember that. God granted him faith. And he made amazing statements about the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no doubt he's in this crowd. How about a little short guy named Zacchaeus? He's in this crowd. He knows who this Savior is. He believes and he's following them. Oh, how about a few more? A dead guy that came to life. Lazarus. He's probably in this crowd. There's women that follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The Mary Magdalene's and the mothers and all of them that were there. Then the 12 are there as well. And the Bible tells us at the end of Christ's life and um, before his resurrection and then even after his resurrection, we find these totals of, of 120 people in the upper room. They're there. And they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're ready to follow him even to death. This is what Jesus desires there's little desire from probably most of the crowd they are there to see what they can get they're they're there for health they're there for wealth they're there for victory 
We've got to get Rome off our back as you think about this text. They are wanting freedom. They are wanting health and wealth and prosperity. And they're There's little desire to submit to Christ and and what his word is because we see that after a little bit of time, this false, spiritual, greedy crowd will change their chance from Hosanna to crucify. People haven't changed a whole lot today. Most people believe there is a God that's in all the poles. But the cross means death, and, and that's where things get a little fuzzy for people. If I'm a Christian, does that mean I die? Do I lay down all things? I'm not ready to do that. And so from a a lack of teaching through the church, years of tickling ears, there is a great number today that look and hear what God's word has to say about sin and the sacrifice of life to follow Christ. and, And that's really not what their goal is. Their own desires are greater than the word of God. I want you to think about this. The message the Bible preaches, it preaches the cross, it preaches the gospel, it preaches repentance, it preaches a Christian life. It preaches the word of God that is foolish to the world. It's foolish to the world. And and I thought about this week. I said, if we don't preach it the way God says, then we may misrepresent the truth. Has anybody ever had somebody very frustrated with them when you share truth with them? It's his foolishness to them. Lay down your life. But this is what Jesus is after. And this is why he's on this road while he's going where he is going. Think about this. Once this crowd realizes the truth of Jesus Christ, the cost of following him, their praises of Hosanna will turn to screams of crucify. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? It's pretty sobering. Many of us were, I think, raised as we looked at the triumphal entry. I don't know about you. We were raised in churches where, you know, Palm Sunday was this amazing day and we, we waved palm branches and it was pomp and circumstance and a lot of those things. But really, when you study this text, it's quite sobering. The Lord Jesus is headed to his death. And there are many, many false worshipers. And yes, there are moments of joy in this text. You see great expressions of belief or, or at least temporary belief. And, and there's true followers there. But, but the stroke of hammer and nail and cross are just moments away. They're just moments away. So as we work our way through this text this morning, it would be good, I want to challenge ourselves, for us to listen for our own voices in this crowd. You say, well, what do you mean by that, Scott? Well, you may be here and you may say, I'm not sure I want to follow this Jesus that Scott just presented. You may be one, like a lot of us, we were those who chanted the Christian terms, but really, really did not understand what was really going on. And then, I, I hope, there's many of us in here that go, I can hear my voice, I am the blind man that God gave grace to. I am the Zacchaeus with a very, very humanistic view of life who he saved. I am the Mary Magdalene, deserving of death that God saved. Will you hear your voice today as we read through this text? This is the last phase of Jesus' earthly ministry. This is it. It takes place in Jerusalem. There's more instruction in this Passion Week recorded than all of his life. These last chapters of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are packed full of instruction. And Jesus is now at this point. The goal is clear here, though. Jesus is going to finish the plan of God. There's nothing that's going to stop him. Not the praise of man or the cries of man. Nothing's going to stop our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what people think of him. He has a God-given plan to do, and he's going to finish it. As I studied this, I was absolutely gripped by our Savior's determination. He is determined. And I pray, I pray for my soul and yours that we'll be captured by his glory and beauty as we watch him head to the cross, not only in this message, 
but many to come. So today we're going to take a look at just a quick peek at his final days. I want to kind of sum up what we're going to see in the future here and help us find an order of how he comes in and what days he comes in on. And then we'll remind ourselves that the Messiah is omniscient. He sees things as they've already taken place. And we'll be reminded that this Messiah is God in flesh. And then we'll listen to hear if our voices and our actions are part of faithlessness or part of faithfulness. Number one, verse one. The last days of the coming Messiah's earthly ministry. Look with me at the very first verse, just the very first phrase. It says, as they approached Jerusalem. I just want to stop right there. This is the, the second time so far in the, the synopsis of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where all four Gospel recordings record the same event. It's only the second time. And it teaches you that, that God is showing us many views of what happened from different angles from the, from the disciples and the writers of Scriptures. But this is only the second time. The only other one was the recording of the 500. I mean, the feeding of the 5,000. Um, so all of them record that. So clearly this event has really impressed upon the apostles. Notice the Bible says, as they approach Jerusalem. So this is the end of the journey. We've been watching this journey as he made his turn um, uh, in, from Galilee. And he started his way to Jerusalem. And along the way we saw him teach amazing things and do amazing miracles. But this is the end of it. And Christ's hour is nearing. This is the target. Jerusalem has been the target of his ministry and he knows why he's there. It's, a, it's, a, it's an astounding thing to think about. It's somewhat chilling when you think about it. He knows why he's there. And I think so often we celebrate sometimes like triumphal entries and we miss that. But John 12 tells us that Jesus arrives and stays at Martha and Mary and Lazarus' house in Bethany. You can read that on your own. He arrives, the Bible says, six days before the Passover. That's going to be his death. Remember, he is going to be the final Passover lamb. So now he's in Bethany. It's six days before the Passover. There's two towns that the Bible marks outside of Jerusalem. One is called Bethany. It's called the House of Date. The other is called Bethpage. It's the House of Figs. It kind of gives you the idea of the agriculture in the area, right? So these are the towns. Bethany is staged about two miles outside of Jerusalem. Now, this is important to look at this because we want to know the timing of the Passion Week, what happens each day. And, and some, sometimes when you study this, you can find missing days if you don't line them up. So, so in seminary, I remember I took this challenge on to try to find out the days Christ came in and, and when he was crucified and when he rose again and how that week looked. Well, out of my study came an uh, understanding that I think, and please don't throw anything at me, I think he actually came in on Monday. But it doesn't ring as well with the church, a triumphal Monday. <laughs> Tradition has taught us that it comes in on Sunday, but I, but I think he came on Monday. And let me just share, share a few things with you so I think you can uh, see where I'm coming along here. We'll give some timing of this. So, because I think if you put him in on Sunday, there's a missing day. It's very hard to account for, which would be Wednesday. So someday, sometime after sundown on Saturday, Jesus arrives in Bethany, which is on the other side of the Mount Olives, John chapter 12, verse 1. The next day, which would be the first day of the week, Jesus attends a dinner in the home of Simon the leopard in Bethany. Stays out there. He's out there. Matthew chapter 26, worth reading and studying. An incredible dinner put on by a man who God had done great things for. This is where a woman pours that perfume on him. Possibly Mary Magdalene as he prepares his body for their sacrifice and burial. On the same day, a large crowd of Jews, they come out from Jerusalem... They're not actually seeking Jesus. They want to see Lazarus. They've heard this man's been raised from the dead. So this is all taking place in what we would believe, what I believe to be Sunday. Then in John chapter 12, verse 12, it says that on the next day, Jesus entered Jerusalem. And if Christ doesn't enter on Monday, we have no record of activity on Wednesday. Now, now that may be okay because there's times that the Bible doesn't tell us every day what, what Jesus did. But Passion Week's a little different. It is packed full of truth. And if studied it well enough, you can see the progression of that. Um, furthermore, and I want you to think about this one. This is really cool as I chase this down. In the year of our Lord's death and resurrection, the 10th day, a Nisan fell on Monday. 
Now you go, well, why is that important? Well, it's important because the day of Passover, taught by Exodus chapter 12, says that a lamb should be selected on that 10th day. Are you coming with me now? He's falling in right on time when everybody else is selecting a lamb for their Passover sacrifice. Guess what God's doing? He's selecting his lamb. So there's a timing here that is absolutely amazing. So I believe when Jesus enters Jerusalem, it's, he's entering on the 10th of Nisan. He, he fulfills the role of the Father's chosen lamb. And just as the Jewish people were selecting their lambs, and we'll see that as he takes a peek into the temple in verse 11, so the Father was selecting the final lamb. The final lamb that would be atonement for our sins. Now, furthermore, when you think about this, Jesus was crucified on the 14th of Nisan, like millions of lambs before him. That was the day. So, so the Bible taught that you selected this lamb, you, you picked him out on the 10th, you brought this lamb in, he stayed with you for these days. You actually brought him into your home. And he stayed with you during Passion Week, during Passover week, and then on the 14th, you slayed him. For your sins. Jesus is right in line with this. This is the plan of God. Christ is the final lamb. 1 Peter 1 verse 18 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with precious things like silver and gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. All your works, they're not, they're not going to save you. But then it says this, But with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless blood of Christ. Then listen to this phrase, verse 20. For he, Christ, was foreknown before the foundations of the world. This was not a random, well, I think I'll go into town today. <laughs> God knew this. And the plan of God, Christ was, was there forming the plan of God before the beginning of time as well. He knew exactly when his father wanted to come in. He had these events in control. And so our Lord comes in. Because the blood of bulls and goats, Hebrews chapter 10 tells us, would not take away sin. And Jesus himself, speaking to the Father, says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared. And he comes as the final lamb, the lamb that John the Baptist said, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's there. And he's in town. So each day... Throughout this Passion Week, Jesus gives us massive amount of instructions. But here's the basics. Monday, I believe, he entered. Only Mark records that Jesus goes to the temple to see and take a look at what's happening, then leaves and cleanses the next day. On Tuesday, Passion Week of Passion Week, Jesus curses a fig tree, and then he cleanses the temple. We'll see that next week. On Wednesday, he had a major conflict with the religious leaders. He does extensive teaching on end times, and Judas sets his plan to betray Jesus, Jesus Christ. On Thursday, Jesus sends his disciples to prepare the Passover. Remember, remember, there's much teaching going on as these days are going by, which they share together in that late afternoon, early evening. From there, Judas departs, and Jesus and the eleven head for the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. After more instruction and prayer, Judas and the temple police show up, and Jesus is arrested. All the disciples flee. This, is, this would be Thursday night, Thursday evening, including Mark. We know that he even writes of himself as one who flees in the garden. Jesus is led to a midnight, non-public, illegal trial by the Jews and cruelly beaten and mocked on Thursday night. The religious leaders condemn him to death. After several of the Sanhedrin trials, Jesus is led to the Gentile rulers to be officially condemned early Friday morning. After Herod and Pilate brutalize him, the Jews call for his crucifixion, and Jesus is murdered on Friday. His body is removed before sundown on Friday. He lays in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea late that afternoon, and Jesus' body was in the grave Friday, Saturday, and part of Sunday. But on Sunday morning, and I, I, resurrection's a day for every believer, right? On Sunday morning, Death and the grave could not hold him. Jesus is raised from the dead in victory over our sins with a massive exclamation point by the Father saying, I am absolutely satisfied with what he has done. And propitiation was made. In short, that's Passion Week. 
So just to kind of give you an idea, that's where I've come. Now you go, oh, Scott, I'm going to hold the Sunday. Great. No, don't worry about it. <laughs> you can figure out what you can do with Wednesday. Uh, but, but I love looking at that because the Bible tells you, if you work hard enough, you have to do a lot of work to get to that little short synopsis I gave you. To try to follow those days, it's an amazing, packed, full week that Jesus has. And he's drawing people to himself even on that week. And he's giving great instruction for his disciples and for the church. Second thought this morning. The all-knowing Messiah prepares to visit Jerusalem. Now let's look and look at the events that are happening. Look back to verse 1 and 2 with me. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethsage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. And he said to them, go into the village opposite of you. We'll stop right there. The city opposite of Bethany was probably Beth, Bethpage. It's, it's a city that's no longer there. They, they don't know exactly where it was. But here's what they do know. But from Bethany, you could not see Jerusalem. So they think that Bethpage was just around the hill of the Mount of Olives, across from the Kendron Valley. And from Bethsage, you could see the beloved city of Jerusalem. Notice that Jesus initiates the preparation of sending two of his disciples. Notice in the text, he initiates. He sent two of his disciples. Well, you go, which two? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us, but here's my guess. I think he sends Peter, number one. This is a very graphic detail, and we know as we develop the book of Mark that most likely we believe that Mark is recording by the inspiration of the scriptures, all by God, this book through listening to Peter's sermons. So I got a feeling Peter was there, and he's giving this description, and, and Mark is recording these things as the Spirit brings these things back to memory for him. So I think Peter's one. The second one I think is possibly John. John would have been a little more welcomed in the area. We'll see during Jesus' trial that he's led into courtyards. He's much well known in this area than the rest of the disciples who were fishermen from up north. And so possibly, I think it's, it's probably Peter and John as they make their way over to Bethpage to find what Jesus has predicted. Now, notice in, in verse 2, it says, Immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. Well, think about this. Jesus foresees the scene that waits, awaits the disciples. See, this is what I mean by the all-knowing Messiah. He's foreseeing the scene. You and I can't do this. You know, you ever give somebody directions? And you, and you do your best? But you don't ever go, and when you get there, there'll be this cult tied up, and, uh, you know, and, and somebody's going to ask you a question, and you're going to reply, and this is what going to We don't do that. We don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. But, but the Lord foresees this and is a clear demonstration of his omniscience. It's amazing. This is not just a good guess. He, he sees. He's God in flesh. He, he's done this before, right? Nathaniel, when he calls Nathaniel, Nathaniel goes, well, how do you know my name? He goes, oh, yeah, I saw you under the fig tree. Nathaniel's going, nobody saw me under that fig tree. This has got to be the Messiah. He, he does things like this. They, they're badgering Jesus about paying taxes. He says, Peter, um, go down to the dock, throw a line in, catch a fish. When you pull that fish out, there's a coin in its mouth. Give it to him. You're not messing with some man here. This is God in flesh. It is amazing what he does. When he gets done cleansing the temple the very first time, John chapter 2, right at the end of the chapter there, 24, 25, somewhere in there, he says, look, I'm not going to commit myself to men because I know their hearts. This is an omnipotent um, Messiah, he knows all things. His deity is, is spread all through the scriptures and shows us who he is. Notice that they pick a cult. He picks a cult that has never been written. It says, on which no one has ever sat. Now, this is amazing on several levels, right? And I know you're thinking where I'm thinking, but let me give you a few thoughts here. First, this is further evidence of his omniscience. How did he know that? Did he get a little text from somebody? Hey, there's a cult, it's tied up, nobody's wrote on it, get that one. It's just further evidence that he's omniscient, he knows. He knows this cult is there, he knows where it's at, he knows it's tied up, and he knows it's never been written. Second, what's really amazing is this unused animals were, were used throughout the Old Testament in the ancient world for sacred purposes. Now just write a few things down because I don't have time to take you. Numbers chapter 19, verse 2 
Bible says here, giving the law out, to take an unblemished red heifer in which no defect, and then it says this, on which no yoke has ever been placed. So all through the law, we often see animals that have been never used, used in here for purification. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 3, they were to take a heifer out of a herd that was never worked, never had pulled a yoke to cover the death of the unknown, to sacrifice for them. And then probably the most amazing one. Do you, do you remember, remember this one? In 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 7. Remember the Ark of the Covenant is in the, in the Philistines' possession? You've got to read this story. Dads, you should read this to your kids. They got the Ark of the Covenant, and everybody's breaking out in disease. Dagon, their, their little wooden god, keeps falling over every night in front of this Ark of the Covenant. And they're going, we've got to get rid of this thing. This thing's going to kill us. So they put the, they're told, the instructions are given this, they're told to put this Ark of the Covenant on a cart, and here's what they're to do. They're to take two cows who have nursing calves, pull the calves away from the cows, and let the cart by itself with no driver return the Ark back to the people of God. Now, I know you probably haven't been in ranching or farming, but if you pull a calf away from a mom, she's going to go through fences to get back to her. It's amazing what God does. So this is, and people say, oh, come on, does this really happen? Absolutely. This is what God does. He does what we don't understand. He, he does amazing things. Now, third, to mark his omnipotent power here is, and I don't know how many of you are in here, I was thinking, maybe Tom, you might have done this, throwing your leg over an unbroken colt. Anybody? I would really encourage you to try this if you're really paid up on your HMO or whatever else. Unridden animals do not care for you getting on their backs. And it's just a fascinating thought. I've, I've done this many times, and, and I have several surgeries to prove it. Um, and then, then, then put all this into the fact that he's on this unwritten colt, and people are waving stuff at him. So we'll go out in the field here. I'll get a colt. We'll put one of you guys out there that think you're a stud. We'll all get palm fronds in our coats and wave them at the horse and see how you do. Now, we do that for fun because we want guys to get bucked off every once in a while. But, but here, look at what our Lord is doing. He has the ability over his creation, and we've seen him do this before. Waves, knock it off. And the sea is calm. All things belong to him. And yet he's going to die on a cross. Staggering, isn't it? Notice verse 3. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back. Jesus is anticipating the disciples' obvious question. Uh, Lord, isn't this stealing? <laughs> I mean, he's anticipating it. He, he has foreknowledge of the future here, doesn't he? You just tell them the Lord has need of it. This isn't some kind of Jedi trick. The Lord has need of it. <laughs> this is God working miraculously in the minds of people in where that, that, that colt was tied up that morning. In a myriad of different things, God is out in front of all of this. And the Lord Jesus, being God, knows what's going on. Look at verses 4 through 6. They went their way, they found the colt tied at the door outside of the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave him permission. Now, surprise, surprise, <laughs> just as Jesus said what happened, happened. And Jesus had predicted the events down to the smallest detail. Uh, what's fascinating is all four writers write of this. And I think clearly the apostles, certainly this is all inspired. God moved them for whatever goes in this Bible. The Spirit of God did that. But they were impressed with this and they recorded. And they spoke about it often. And for the apostles, Jesus represents knowledge and power. And think about this after the cross, after the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they start thinking about these events. I mean, think about what... <laughs> I mean, the aha moments they must have had. Do you remember when Jesus did that? Do you remember that cult? I mean, you can imagine them going back and now telling the stories to the church that was being birthed in the book of Acts of the greatness and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it has to be God. And there's no other way to salvation except through him. They would have told these stories over and over. And we do the same today. 
They're part of what we believe. They help us understand the power of the gospel. So they knew their Lord and Master was in full control. They saw him calm seas and ride unbroken colts. I love the phrase that would be found in, in Matthew 21, 3, that's not in verse 6, but when they asked, they were to tell them, and it says in verse 3 here, that the Lord has need of it. I like that phrase. Sometimes, maybe, I don't know if you feel this way, you feel like that colt. You're just tied up and standing around. You've not been doing much. And I love that phrase, the Lord has need of it. The Lord has need of it. I think this is a vivid recollection of the eyewitness probably of Peter. The Lord has need of it. Think about Peter himself. I imagine after his insert, open mouth insert foot times of his ministry or his prior ministry to the cross with the Lord Jesus, he often sat back and said, Lord, why did you choose me? Just a dumb fisherman. And, and we've talked about that many times here. God loves to use nobodies. We're seeing that in our Exodus series on Wednesday nights as we work through the life and ministry of Moses. He, he just, he's amazed that God wanted to use him. And he does that. He, he, and he he's wants to take what seems to be the simplest things and make them great for his kingdom. See, the Bible says, my sheep know my voice and they follow me. They follow me. It's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. Do you realize that? There's a lot of people hearing the voice of Jesus. I mean, we live in the South, in this kind of. So many people go to church here. Lots of people hear the voice of Jesus. They hear the Bible being read and taught. They've heard sermons. The difference is following. Do you know that? The difference is following. Because following is not just, well, let's just skip along and get all of our stuff we want, which I think the majority of the crowd that's going to see a symbol here wants. It is costly. After Peter re- tried to rebuke Jesus Christ, and he ends up getting rebuked just a few chapters back, look at Mark chapter 8. Guess what Jesus says about what a life of a believer looks like? Look at verse 34. We have to remind ourselves of this. We're not part of some ear-tickling, get-what-we-want society. Look what we're a part of. Look at Mark chapter 8, verse 34. He's already told Peter to get behind him, Satan, because you're thinking like a man. You're not thinking of the ways of God. And then he does this. Look what he does. He summons a crowd with his disciples, and he says to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, if anyone, Peter, John, George, Martha, put your name in there, whatever your name is. If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself. What does that mean? See, we're so full of ourselves. We, we think, well, God, you've got to take me. If you took that guy, you really got to take me. We see ourselves not the way God sees ourselves. Most people who are hearing messages or the gospel the first time, they're going, whoa, 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 I didn't kill anybody. See, we have to realize we have nothing to offer God. All of our works are filthy rag. We, we come totally empty-handed. That's what it means to deny himself. And then it says, take up a cross and follow me. Well, that means death. Death to me, possibly death to my ambitions that I have if I'm willing to follow him. I remember we talked about, we opened the sermon, who, have you ever followed somebody? If I'm going to follow you, if I'm going to run through walls, I'm going to go after you, Lord Jesus Christ. It means I've got to set everything else aside. Now, he is so gracious, and he lets us do what we do, and often gives us marriage and children and, and money and all kinds of things. He's so, so gracious, but do you follow him regardless? This is the mark of a believer. Verse 35, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Well, a lot of people are working on saving their lives, man. They're putting full-time effort in it. But whoever loses his life, sets it aside. God, I'll follow you. You'll be the one I'll run through walls for. For my sake, for the gospel, will save it. For the truth of what Jesus Christ has really done. And then it says this great statement, and you all know the statement. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You know, that's going to be the repeated theme at Judgment Day. Person after person who at least tried to gain the whole world 
and they will lose their soul. It's sobering, isn't it? This is, this is different. Verse 37, we have to just finish this. For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? I can't give anything. But the one who saved it, I'm going to follow him. Hell or high water. Trials. Sickness. Rejection. We follow our Savior. Now we may stumble and fall a little bit. He is gracious. And I don't want to paint a picture of us perfectly, you know, in line, marching along, left, left, right, however they do that. Boy, ah, uh, yeah, we fall behind a little bit, right? We, we got to get picked up by Christ and come back and help by other believers. But we are intent by the grace of God to follow him. And then verse 38, boy, this is um, a humbling verse, isn't it? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, uh-oh, does that mean all of this? <laughs> Who is ashamed of my words? my instruction, my commands, the way a believer follows. The Bible says in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of Him when He comes in His glory of His Father with His holy angels. Boy, you don't want to see that. Can you imagine the Lord Jesus saying, you are ashamed of me. I am ashamed of you. That's eternal death. That's exactly what he came to the cross to save us from. And yet the crowds are full of people that this will be said to. Verse 7, notice this. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. The disciples brought the colt back to Bethany from probably Bethsage, and they formed this makeshift saddle and, uh, out of coats for Jesus, and, and we're told there was no rodeo. He, the Bible just says he rode the sun. This unridden colt. And by far, more importantly, there's a whole other aspect to this that we might have to point out here. When we go back and study David and Solomon, they rode in on mules. And they rode in as great victors and triumphs and kings and so forth. And there was a tradition there. But Matthew takes time during this count. This is why you have to study the synopsis when you work through time passage like this. Matthew 21, 4 and 5 says this, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophecy, so he's writing this unwritten cult for something more than what we think. Matthew says this, say to the daughters of Zion, behold your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt the full of the beast of burden. And Matthew is referring, he's not quoting word for word, but he's referring to the great prophecy of Zechariah 9, 9. Listen to this. Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. Now listen to this phrase here. He is just, righteous, that means. And listen to this phrase. And endowed with salvation. Humble, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, a foal of a donkey. He's coming endowed with salvation. He wasn't there to set his kingdom up. He wasn't there for all the accolades and, and the pomp and circumstance. And he's coming with salvation. And sacrifice of bulls and goats would not please God. So that salvation was completely summed up in his death. And that's where he's headed. Third thought. The faithless often praise what they don't understand. The faithless often praise what they don't understand. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem, the crowd's excitement grew. They possibly recognize this could be an entry as, as a messianic. Remember, if you study the silent years, there's 400 silent years. Do you realize how many of these guys came into town during the 400 silent years? The, the extra biblical material records that many of them came in. And most of them wore, uh, rode white chargers and had swords. And, and uh, this is where John Maccabees and a lot of those other things come in that other people love to follow. They've seen this before, but not this way. Jesus is coming in different. They're throwing coats and foliage before him. This was customary when, when Joram was being removed by death and Jehu uh, uh, king of the southern tribes takes over. They did the same things. They put their coats over steps for him to come. So, so this is something that's been done in their history before. But notice verse 9. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting Hosanna. 
Now, it seems there's possibly two different groups that are happening here. There's, there's one group with Lazarus' resurrection and some of the crowds out of Jericho. And many of these have witnessed miracles, and they desire to see his miraculous strength come in and overthrow Rome and usher the kingdom. And so that group's coming along with Jesus. But the synopsis show that there's another group. When you study all of them, there's another group that comes out from Jerusalem. And I think this is a group that heard about Jesus. They had not maybe witnessed the things, this group that's coming with Jesus. And so these groups collide out here. And that's the idea the, re- the writer's trying to give you here, that these groups have now come together. And this group coming out of Jerusalem may have been a little different. There was probably hopeful people in there. There was probably people hoping that the Messiah, Jesus was the Messiah, and Rome would be crushed. But there were skeptics there, and there were haters there, namely the Pharisees, namely the religious rulers. Notice in verse 9 and 10 that this amazing anthem erupts from the crowd. And we sang this this morning. What a wonderful song Hayward had picked out for us. Notice in nine, uh, middle 9, it says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming king of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And as you sang today, you sang that first song, it actually gave you a definition of Hosanna. It means save. It actually means save now. Save now. So all these groups, there's two groups, one that was behind Jesus following him, one's coming out. They're singing, Lord, save now. And you can see this scene. They've made the turn around Mount of Olives because they've come from Bethany and they, they'll pass by Bethsage and this anthem starts to get louder and louder and these two groups join. And there's, there's this divine appeal for divor- uh, deliverance from the oppression that they're under. But the people are not pleading for salvation from sin. There's a difference. Save now. Get this off of us. Make us be, be on top. Remember the disciples are struggling with, with us too. They're Jews and they're struggling. They're going, uh, Lord, we want to know who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. Can I sit on your left and your right? See, they're all thinking that way. Nobody's thinking about death. Nobody's thinking about a cross except our Lord Jesus Christ. See, they were seeking the promise with the reign of the Messiah in his second coming, not his first And when Jesus didn't fulfill those expectations, the faithless cheers turned to hostile rejection. Can you just imagine that? I I, I love narratives, and they're fun to teach because you can drop into them. They're very word picture oriented. And you can just see this cheers going on, possibly Monday, uh, the 10th of Nicene. By the 14th, there are no cheers of Hosanna, not one. That has been silenced. And those believers are hiding because they're scared. And it has gone to the plan of God. Before I leave this point, notice that he talks about Father Father David to the son of David, the other writers use. This is clearly a reference to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 and 13. There where God says, I will establish his throne forever. This is a great statement, and, 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 and here's what I want to close this point with, and then just a short one to finish up. Do you remember in Mark chapter 10? Do you remember what the blind man was crying? Have mercy on me, son of David. I wonder how much he affected this crowd. Because I think the blind man, as we, I think, prove from the scriptures, had genuine faith. I, I think he was there. I think he had received mercy from the son of David. And and though many of these cries of Hosanna would fade away as the week goes on and turn to crucifixion, I think this man maybe had a great effect. I think possibly he might have been loud with a pure heart. Maybe he was joined with Martha and Mary as they looked at Lazarus who was dead and now alive. Maybe they were joined with Zacchaeus and, and maybe Mary Magdalene was there and she filled with demons and everything that would come with that is now a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and they were singing Hosanna. They knew that he could save. They watched him save. They watched him beat death. They watched him beat demons. They watched him beat blindness. They knew who he was. And I think we still celebrate the triumphal entry because there were men and women there who understood who he was at least some level. And you and I have the ability to, in these beautiful scriptures that we have to look back and go, wow, he is Hosanna. And I'm so glad Hayward picked that song because we sing that. 
He saves. He saves now. And if you're here today, I would encourage you that he saves now. He is the Hosanna God. And you and I who are saved in here, we know the time when he pierced our hearts and he made us know him. And you and I surrendered our lives by the grace of God. Now, as beautiful as the blind men and Zacchaeus and Mary Magdalene and these others that are there, Jesus was not fooled by their faithlessness. The next day, Tuesday, when he comes in, Luke chapter 19 says this, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now, you have been hidden, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you and your enemies will overthrow you by bar- and putting barcades against you and surround you and hem you in on every say- side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave you one stone upon another. And here's the statement. Because you did not recognize the time of visitation. He was not blinded by their fake, faithless cheers. He knew what was going on. Last thought here before we tie this up. Verse 11 And number four, the Messiah is watching the actions of the faithless. This is so interesting, this little verse. I hope you see it as interesting tonight. Only Mark records this. Um, uh, And and, and let me say this. There's a lot of things that happened when he came in that the other writers record. There's the Pharisees and religious leaders who come out and show their hatred towards the Lord Jesus Christ and tell him to tell them to stop cheering for him. And, and then you have Christ's response. There's a group of Gentiles and John that come out and they want to see Jesus and they go to Philip trying to get to Jesus. There's a lot of things that go on. But Mark, only Mark records this very different path that Jesus takes as he comes into this holy city. Look at verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at it, he left. No cleansing here. This is why we start to figure out days that are happening here. See, if the kingdom of God truly arrived at this point, Jesus would have continued on into the holy city and they would have installed him as king. This is not a coronation. This is a selection of a lamb. Do you see that? He is not here to be made king on this visit. He is here to be selected by his father as the last lamb. So Jesus dismounts. He walks into the temple courtyard, most likely. He looks around. And this this look, I mean, there's an an all-embracing survey of the conditions of his father's house and the spiritual conditions of the hearts of the people that are in there. This is a penetrating look as he sees their acts. He sees their godlessness. He sees their foolishness. And he takes account of it. And he's coming back. It's an amazing verse. He rides into Jerusalem. He came to the temple. He looks around and he leaves. And you've already seen his omniscience. He's using that. He's using all of his his attributes as he's looking at the situations that's there. There is lying and cheating and false worship. There is deception going on. And he is marking it. He's watching people act religious that are not. And he sees it. And the next day, he comes back after taking account of this unholy traffic. He will come set the record straight. You say, well, why didn't he cleanse the temple then? That's a good question. I believe the preparation for the Passover was going on, and he did not want to stop any of that. There were still lambs being sold and doves to the poor that would use a dove instead of a lamb were being distributed. He knew what they were doing was wrong, the way they were handling it, but he knew that one day some of those people would see and make the connection with him as the final Passover lamb. So I believe he let that go. He comes back after that selection day, which will be the 10th of Nisan, and he will return the next day. And there is a day coming as we just kind of close this out, that the Lord, the all-seeing, the penetrating God who sees all, who has recorded everything, the Bible tells us that he records the deeds of the wicked. He will open those books and he will clean house again. And so the final thought is, is Jesus your Savior going to be your judge? 
And then as we wrap this up, did you hear your voice in the crowd? I challenge you to think, where would I be in that crowd right now? If this scene took place at this moment, where would I be? Would I be the faithless ones who were looking for prosperity and health and wealth and all that? Would I be the one that my cheers for him turned to screams at him? Mm, Probably all of us, if it was not for the grace of God, it would be all of us. Maybe you remember that day. Some of you got saved a little later in life. You know your foolishness. You know you mocked Christians or, or, or you just didn't care. Maybe you think back about that. Maybe you think back about religious time where you acted very religious, but you didn't really know Jesus Christ. You didn't believe all of his word. You didn't want to really obey it. You wanted to form your own Jesus. You wanted to make your own thinking of him and how things should be done. Maybe that was you. But maybe many of you today are the faithful ones. And you see your Lord riding in, and you can say with a pure heart, because Jesus made your heart pure, Hosanna. You are my now Savior. You weren't just my Savior when, when you received me back in such and such a date. You are my now Savior. You saved me then, you have me saved now, and you will keep me saved, and you are my Hosanna Savior. I trust many of you can say that. And I plead with you, by the grace of God, if you can't, repent, turn to him. God will do that in your heart. Ask him. Ask him to show you that kind of savior. He will not fail you. Amen? Father, thank you for this time. This is a good passage, Lord. Thank you for giving us gospel eyes to see what was really transpiring. We thank you for the blind men, and Zacchaeus, and Lazarus, and Martha, and Mary, and Mary Magdalene, and maybe possibly the mother of Jesus, and maybe maybe a hundred others, Lord, that could have been there, that understood Jesus was their Savior. They didn't understand how the events were going to come out, but we thank you for them that they were there. And Lord, we thank you that we can see that. Lord, I ask that you would help Riverbend always be a church that preaches from God's word. It is so easy to create a Christianity that's open and free and and anybody can make Jesus into whatever they want. But that's not what your word is. We thank you that we believe in you despite the struggles we go through. Thank you that the joy of the Lord is greater than the sorrow of suffering. Thank you that the joy of the Lord is greater than the trials we go through. And though, Lord, our hearts are heavy at times and we struggle through difficulties in this world that we live in, Lord, you are our Hosanna God. You keep us saved despite our circumstances and even despite our weak belief at times. We praise you for that, Lord. Strengthen us so we'll give you praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.